This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by a long-term colleague, a, a brilliant founder and entrepreneur, and now one of the leaders of a company called Nomi Health. We're going to talk to Dutch Rojas today. Dutch is the Senior Vice President of Sano by Nomi Health. Uh, Dutch himself is an entrepreneur. Uh, he's had two companies he's founded and sold. He's working on a third. He's got great expertise in the supply side of healthcare, including his work with all-inclusive prices and surgery future. Uh, he, he, he's made himself, and, he, and he's become, a very sort of speaker at physician specialty conferences and financial institution symposiums. He's really a fascinating and brilliant guy, a, a fierce advocate for private practice physicians, for ASCs, and, and for price transparency. He has lived and lived this in 11 different countries, learned English at the age of 16, but speaks better than I do, and splits his time between Tulsa and New York with his wife and two children. Dutch, thank you so much for joining us today. Always great to get a chance to visit with you. Always a, an incredibly inspiring person. Take a moment and tell us a little bit about yourself, introduce yourself, and then, then we'll talk about, after we get going, about surgery centers and, and some of these that direct healthcare relationships you know, with employers and what that's looking like and the evolution of that. But, but first, tell us about yourself and your background. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I, I know it's been a pleasure to watch you for the last 20 years. I uh, see all the success that Becker's is having. I know you guys do like everything. And I'm sure one day we'll get another, get, get more of a chance to talk about those things. Uh, I think, look, for me, it was just uh, a labor of love, probably like it is for you and others that are passionate about, you know, putting patients first and making healthcare affordable and accessible. What are the ways to do that? What are the paths to do it? How long does it take to really learn, you know, to figure that out, to think about it, to ponder it, to be curious about it? And then, you know, do you have the drive? And so, you know, this week I was in D.C. working on physician-owned hospital legislation. And there's so many physicians, right, that want affordable and accessible care. And there's so many knowledgeable physicians, but they're only knowledgeable about one piece, right? If I talk about benefits, they call it insurance. And they say, well, everything's insurance, but they don't understand that side. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I've been such a big fan of yours and Becker's in general is like, I feel like you're trying to educate the world. Um, I'm trying to do the same. You know, how do you teach physicians why private practice is so important and why being an employed doctor, while an amazing calling, right, doesn't help further the doesn't help further the mission of affordable and accessible care? I think um, by way of background, though, like you know, I'm just a kid who studied accounting at a small Protestant college called Oral Roberts. I, I then went to uh, a very fancy graduate school across the pond in England. And, you know, I studied finance and capital markets. So we tried to figure out what was a win-win-win for the patient, the physician, and the self-funded employer. And we found that to be direct contracts. And then, of course, forward contracts on top of that. So I think you made some mention of that. But yeah, that's it. I mean, look, I just want healthcare to be affordable and accessible. And what are the vehicles to do that? And talk about sort of one of the things that's that's gone up and down over the years, and you can give us much more perspective on this, is this concept of direct contracting between physicians and, and between employers. What does that look like today? Talk about why that could be useful to growing an ASC business. You know, what do surgery forward contracts mean, and how do they help surgery centers and employee, employers? Tell us a little bit about those issues to start with. Well, I, I certainly think Beckers understands the role of ASCs. You guys have played a remarkable uh, part in that relationship. 
I think I fell in love with the concept of surgery centers when I started developing them out of college, working with physicians. And I realized that we were delivering care at a price significantly lower. We could deliver care at a cost significantly lower, but, but the physicians chose to deliver it at a price significantly lower than most of the health systems. I thought it was interesting. I'd never been in a situation where I could say, hey, my cost is X, right? Studying cost accounting. And then my margin, I want it to be Y. But physicians would say, Dutch, don't maximize the revenue, right? What we want to do is we want to make healthcare affordable and accessible. And we want to make it so that patients can get access to our care. And this is the model that we came to. And most of the surgery center development companies at that time in the late 90s and, and mid-aughts really were physician-driven and physician-focused. And so in 2006-07, I think that's when you and I first met, we started having these conversations. You know, it was, a, it was a, an A-B test. It was really for five or six, seven years, it was really finding large institutional employers and their benefits people were saying, hey, this is what we used to do in the 70s and 80s before HIPAA or the privacy and security rules were enacted. We used to pay our own claims. We did everything ourselves. We had our own TPAs. We, we, we built our own networks. And now we have administrative services only agreements with United, Cigna, Aetna, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Anthem, et cetera. And what they wanted to do, what, what direct contracting does is one, it reduces expenses. You, you build the networks for self-funded employers by saying, okay, tier one is ASCs for surgeries. Tier two is surgical hospitals or physician-owned hospitals. And tier three is the health systems, right? And by, and by building the plan that way, we've seen people go from a $100 million spend to a $70 million spend or a $72 million spend. Look, what does an employer want to do with $30 million, right? They want to redeploy the capital for something else. Maybe they want to use it for distributions. Maybe they want to use it for R&D. Maybe they want to use it to get raises. Maybe in the environment we're in today, they want to use it to shore up their balance sheet. You know, it's not up to me. What, what I want is for private practice physicians to win. And so in, in engaging in direct contracts, you've done a couple of things. You've removed the ASO. So all those unnecessary fees are out. You've removed the insurance carrier, if you will. And you've made it very easy for employers to do business with private practice docs. And they never knew that value was there. And so this is kind of the way we've gone over the last, uh, I think we started in 2008. So yeah, we sold the company last year. So yeah. I think it's I think it's working well. What are your thoughts? Well, talk to me about sort of what, what are you seeing and how much of this direct contracting is going on between employers and surgery centers? I know there's a lot of it going on. It's sort of the big surgery center chain level. Is there some of it going on at the small center level as well? What What are you seeing out there? I, I I've never really paid attention to what you know the 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 SEAs I guess optums of today were doing. Um, I've not really paid attention to what USPI or tenant we're doing. Um, but I look, we have over a thousand contracted ASCs around the country. We service some 4 million customers, you know, members of health plans. I, I think that the ground level game for most physician owned facilities where they own the majority of the shares, uh, we're seeing significant utilization. Now, is it all of their care? Are we bigger than managed care? Absolutely not. But I can say that the growth since COVID, March of 2020, has been exponential, where from 2008 to 2015, I think I thought I was going to go bankrupt 10 times. 
You know, we just couldn't no, really get significant traction. And it wasn't 2017, 18, we saw our first uh, 20,000 cases. I, I'd never seen anything like that before. But that's phenomenal. And, and sort of the, the patients that come into the surgery centers, are they direct pay, cash pay patients? What does that patient, what does that look like, the direct healthcare patients? Is that, what, what does that look like? And what's the strategy for surgery centers to obtain more cash pay contracts? And do they want um, them? If you think if you think about it this way, self-insured employers represent about 33% of all labor in the country, right? So there's lots of charts. There's there's lots of industry professionals that can give you the information. But like Texas, it's got 29 million person population, and 5.5 million of those are uh, have benefits through self-funded lives, right? So you can kind of extrapolate and do the math. The, the, the thing is, what it looks like for the common person, for the average plan member, is uh, they have an insurance card just like everybody else or a coverage card. They have no copay, no deductible, and no coinsurance. So the incentive for them to go to an ASC or to call a private practice doctor is pretty high. And then on the physician side, there's no pre-auths, right? We don't do pre-authorizations. Everybody asks, like I was on the Hill, which I mentioned earlier, you know, and people say, oh, you know, the lawmakers go, oh, my gosh, you know, the hospital association tells us all the time that you're going to have a problem with overutilization. Well, I haven't seen it. We get all the data from the EMRs, from the spine docs, right, which are the ones that really get accused of it. We, we, we have uh, access to the EMRs for the orthopods, and we just don't see overutilization at all. In fact, we see less. We could not agree with you more. We could not agree with you more. One of the great narratives that goes through healthcare is that everything will be saved if we move towards quote unquote value-based care. And what we all recognize, anybody that watches this closely knows that if you change the payment system, like there's a whole set of narratives that say the payment system's the problem. And you and I really know the payment system's not really necessarily the problem. If you end up with the payment system all being value-based care, instead of overutilization, you get underutilization because people are trying to withhold care. It's different problems, but the same result of, of an imperfect system. But we know that at the end of the day, there's a shortage of doctors, a shortage of surgeons, a shortage of providers. If we need a specialist, we've got to find one. It's hard to find one. And, and so we all know that the real issue is not that there's overutilization by spine orthopedic or pain doctors. There's always going to be some of it in anything, but if we go the other direction, there's going to be abuses on the other side, too. Isn't that right, Dutch? I mean, you're going to see different kinds of abuses. I mean, there's going to be some percentage that's a problem, regardless whether you're in a value-based system or fee-for-service system. But when you say, I don't really see that overutilization and abuse, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you, you see it a little bit. 5% of doctors are going to be abusive, just like on the other side, you know, X percent of insurance companies are going to be abusive. I only bring it up because the, the, the lawmakers that we talk to, whether they're on the Republican side or the Democrat side, always say, you know, the reason we passed this blah, blah, blah in Obamacare, this moratorium opposition, is because we had overutilization. I'm like, well, show me the data. It's not true, right? We, we have all these employers from around the country. We get all of their utilization data, whether they use our program or it's just their regular PPO. We see it all. And we don't see it. If I did, I would, you, you and I and others would be the fiercest advocates to use the health systems for everything. I just would be. I, I'm like, I don't, I don't try. I'm not tied yeah. to a methodology. I'm tied to like what's best for patients and employers. Oh, and also what's best for physicians. And when you look at that, you see the facts as they are presented and you act accordingly.
A hundred percent. And the health systems, we, we have great empathy for the health systems as well, as they've become America's safety net, too. So we have great empathy for the health systems as well as the surgery centers and the physicians all the way across the board. I mean, all the providers seem to be getting ganged up on by the big payers, which is a different story. Tell us more about direct contracting, the strategy for obtaining cash pay patients, and what you see as the role of health benefits and what role ASCs play. What, what do you sort of see in the future? That's a big question. Um, okay, so there's a couple things. I think one of the things I, we're trying to do, and we're just working at it as much as we can, is we're trying to educate physicians, whether they work for a health system, whether they work for private practice, on wh what are benefits. Like, what's the difference between a self-funded plan, what's a level-funded plan, and what's a fully insured plan, and what are the incentives and the drivers in each? Because, you know, like I'll hear from physicians and they'll say, Oh, all my claims get denied. You know, my patients get denied. And I'm like, well, in a self-funded plan, there's no incentive for that. An, a, an administrative services only agreement, when an employer has that agreement, which a lot do, they get paid on utilization. So they don't want to have denial. But on a fully insured plan, well, they make a margin. So they want to have more uh, margin in that plan. And so you may see some more denials. But to blanketly say, you know, we get denials, blah, 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 that doesn't work. Uh, to your question about cash pay, this is one of my favorite questions. I think um, we've been promoting this for probably 10 years. We've done it for about a 250 or 300 uh, private practices. Is You know, I would love for physicians to start building their own Shopify stores. I think if you really make money on surgeries, why not do consults for a dollar? I know that sounds horrible and strange and people hate it when I say it, but look, if the money is in procedures, wouldn't you want to figure out how to get through everyone that needs care and conservative care and then really use the surgeons for what they're really best at, which is surgery, especially the best ones? No, absolutely. Absolutely. You want to focus surgeons doing what they do great as much as possible, and also their intuition and knowledge about what a patient needs. Talk a little bit about, you know, there's all this discussion of price transparency, quality data. What are some of your thoughts on the quality data? And what do you see out there in terms of the usefulness of the quality data, the usefulness of the price transparency? What are some of the things you're saying? Well, so, so I think, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, perfect competition removes all profit, right? And I think we all agree on that, at least those of us who studied basic economics. Um, what's happening and the reason employers are really the gatekeepers are one, employers have a fiduciary obligation to plan assets, right? And those obligations are far and fierce. And when you look at the financial side of ERISA, they get prosecuted very quickly on the health side. They don't, but I, I think that's soon to come. So I think, I think employers will get more involved with price transparency. Why is price transparency important? Well, it tells you what you're going to pay. Right. It's not we, we get reframed. Sometimes people go, well, how am I going to shop for something in an emergency? Well, you're not. The point is that when an employer sponsored plan uh, has a fiduciary obligation, it just wants to know what it's going to pay when it goes to the ER for a, a broken femur. It doesn't need to shop. You don't need to shop for a broken femur. The, the other reason price transparency is important is because employers are now incentivizing people to travel. Here's the most amazing thing I've heard. Employers are now, and these are some of the most forward-thinking employers think tech. What we're seeing is we're seeing quality data, which, by the way, requires a lot of iterations. The base quality data we have today is not great. 
I don't care what anybody says. It's not great. But it is a starting point. We are going to iterate on it. And what's happening is large jumbo employers are saying, you can go wherever you want in the country. Here are the nine doctors we found that do this specific procedure for a great price, but they also have the best outcomes. You are free to go wherever you want. Think about how much of a change that is from your current health plan that's in Chicago, right? Like you can't go outside of certain borders without going out of network, right? For me in New York, like if I leave Manhattan, it's like, well, you're in trouble. You can't leave here. You're stuck. If I think there's a better doctor in Florida to treat some kind of sports injury, I can't go down there. And employer-based contracting is changing that. They're driving quality and they're driving better price. So price transparency is important because it says to the best doctors in the country, you can get paid the most while the doctors who don't have great quality will get paid the least. And I think, look, if you're, if you're a competitive doc, which mo most of them are, that's the kind of system you're going to thrive in because that's the kind of system that gets you the right patients, it gets you the right compliance, and it gets you the best outcomes. I think I've answered part of the question, at least. No, no, you did, you did, you did phenomenally well, actually. Thank you very, very much. Take a moment, Dutch. We're moving into the second half of 2023. What are you most focused on and excited about as we get into the second half of this year? Where, where are you most focused and excited? I, I'm genuinely excited about and focused on uh, forward contracts. And here's what this means. And I know you, you and I talked about this five or six, seven years ago, something like that. Um, what it means is, let's say we have all the utilization data for a, an employer that say they have 20,000 employees around the country and they utilize um, 50,000 MRIs a year, right? And so we can take those 50,000 MRIs and we can say, well, you paid an average of $625 a piece. Why don't we find the providers for those, those radiology centers, and why don't we why don't we contract for them today? That way in our pro forma financials, and of course you know this already, this is especially true for private equity driven companies and for public companies. You've got to get stabilized numbers in your financials. And so it's a big win-win. The employer now knows, right? An X turns into a known number, but here's the reason it's also important. It's also important for the physician practices. Let's say you're a chain of radiology, independent radiology center. What's the difference between evaluation of historical performance versus a fully booked set of deals for the next five years? Like if I come to you and I sell my business to you, Scott, I offer it for sale and I say, well, here's my historical numbers. I don't, I'm not guaranteed anything tomorrow. I think I am, right? I believe based on past performance, I'll still get that business. But, but I show you a book that says, well, guess what? I've got 20 of the largest employers in the country and my, like, my capacity is 60% paid for already. Like, it's such a big change. And the kind of innovation that larger employers are after are the things like forward contracts. And so that's what I'm most excited about. Fascinating. Doc, I'm going to ask you one more question, and I apologize for putting you on the spot. You've been this brilliant entrepreneur what advice do you give to other founders and entrepreneurs? Where do you start in giving advice to other entrepreneurs and founders? What, what are some of your core thoughts? Well, I feel like I should ask you that question. I mean, you've done associations, you've done backers, you've done law firms, like you've done everything. 
I hope I can be a little bit of that. Look, I, I think every single entrepreneur and founder needs to give back to where they got back. In other words, like I couldn't, I'm not in this spot because just because I was driven. I'm in this spot because 50, 75, 100 other founders gave their time, their energy, their advice, their capital. I mean, I, I, I mean you, you know this because I used to do it. I called a significant number of physicians, brokers, consultants, and I literally just asked them to spend 15 or 20 minutes with me because I had very specific questions. I always sent them an agenda and they were nice enough to give me their time so I could basically, you know, download from their brain. And so I think my advice to every single founder out there, I, I'm an investor in 17 startups, healthcare startups specifically. And look, I, I don't think you can do anything better than give your time and be a great mentor. Phenomenal. Dutch, always a pleasure to visit with you again. Dutch Rojas, brilliant entrepreneur, senior vice president at, at, at Sano by Know Me Health. Just, but what a phenomenal person. What a pleasure to visit with you, Dutch. Brilliant, and thank you so much for joining us today on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.